There isn't a problem with the bidet, is there? A problem with the bidet? Yeah, Simpsons thing. Oh. Uh, speaking of bidets, oh. I miss Japanese toilets. Oh, oh, they had bidets for days. Bidets for days. Bidets for days for my bidonkadonk. <laughs> and that's the intro. <laughs> <laughs> Nice to meet me. Um, You're listening to Jen and the Film Critic, a Screen Mayhem podcast. My name is Jen Blundell and with me as always is Watashi no Film Critic. (laughs) Watashi wa no namai wa Paul des. Paru des. Ah, nice. That's Paul Salt. Yeah, it's Paul Salt. It's Paul Salt. That guy's struggling his way through a Japanese sentence that children know is, uh, <laughs> is Paul Salt. Yeah, yeah. Well, look. Pretty sure I said wa twice. And ga probably would have been more appropriate in at least one of them. <laughs> we don't know Japanese! No, we don't, we but we cinema. tried. So We tried. We did and try. can any British person say more than that? I mean, no. <laughs> no, there's never been a fluent British person in any <laughs> nope. language than their own. No. Itchy, <sighs> ni, san, she, she, let's go. get on the road. How many Ichi films? Nas, Ichi ni san, she, go. Ichi ni san, she, go, Paul Salt. How many films go. are we talking about today? Oh, 15. <laughs> <You're>... <laughs> the terror in your eyes. <laughs> so sorry, Jen. This is what you I get. asked him, listeners, I asked him this question right before we started recording. He refused to tell me and I was like, oh, it's probably yeah. nine again, isn't it? We don't Look. swear on this show. <laughs> but not with our words. Not, not with our, our words, eyes. but with my eyes and with yeah. my fingers that you can't see. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good thing you can't see them, folks. They're very expressive. Mm-hmm. She's written words onto them. <laughs> yeah. Um I apologize. There are roughly ten movies worth reviewing or that I get round to reviewing every month, and it's been six weeks, therefore we're on track. If it helps at all, we can do a five movie episode in like two weeks' time. <laughs> I don't think that does help, actually. Oh. Yeah. No, you're right. I can see how more of this is not the comfort that I <laughs> thought it might be. You know, if it makes it, if the work makes it easier for you, we can just do extra. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, we just... Well, no time for chatting, no time for friends. No, no that's fair. Start. Itchy. Movies Go. are here. Okay, so let's do the blockbusters first and then move into the good movies. That's okay, not great. quite how it breaks down, but <laughs> we've had some stinky blockbusters since you were away. Mm-hmm. Uh, starting with Renfield, the newest, bigger film. Yes, this is Renfield. I've... We all know the story of Dracula. I was going to say, is it the Ren... is it a reference to Dracula? Yes, mm. it's a Dracula situation because the film picks up a few hundred years after the events of the um, sort of traditional story of Dracula in which Dracula has survived and his faithful servant Renfield, played by Nicholas Holt, is still assisting his master to harvest the blood of the innocent uh, in return for a small share of his power, fueled by eating insects. But he's starting to resent his ill treatment at the the taloned claws of his master, played by Nicolas Cage, Uh, and things start to change for him when he meets a beautiful police officer, played by Aquafina, who Mm. might just get him starting to see the best in himself. So, 
I think this movie would like to be this month's cocaine bear. Okay. A sort of high concept, you know, you tell them the concept and people laugh kind of film that's self-aware and quite camp and also has a heart and something to say about self-love and well-being at work. This, not cocaine bear. <laughs> um, and something, you know, which is something very important for us all to bear in mind. A little hard to say why, therefore, it just doesn't work for me mm. um the director is chris mckay who previously made the lego batman movie and a movie called the tomorrow war which was essentially ignored by everyone right i think it was one of these straight to apple tv movies so mm. it didn't didn't play or prime or something. i've never heard of it no he's also had a hand in the dreadful doolittle movie Ooh. and a story credit on the new dungeons and dragons film oh. so he's definitely experienced in comedy but only one of those credits has actually been any good and mm. it's not renfield <laughs> yeah um, Holt is doing his best and he's quite endearing as this sort of, you know, very awkward Englishman. Mm. Um, but, you know, he's really cribbing notes from what we do in the shadows, really, in terms of that performance. Sure. Uh, Cage is doing Cage and it's certainly not a Sleepy Cage performance. Oh, this is what this is. I saw a, po- saw a, tr- I saw a poster ah. for this on the side of a bus in Japan <laughs> and was like, is that Nicolas Cage and what is he advertising? <laughs> Right. I mean, it, to, and to be fair, in Japan, it could easily have been a new nail. Exactly. Varnish. That's what I mean. I was like, I, I would absolutely not put it past Nicolas Cage to advertise anything in Japan. Like, no, he anything at all. He constantly needs the money. Yeah. Um, no, he, yeah, he's doing his all and he's doing the vampire's kiss kind of thing. And it's, yeah. it's wonderful in that way that Nicolas Cage is, and as much as it's quite bad, <laughs> but so committed mm. that you just can't help but appreciate the fact that he's doing it and that he's still up for it. Yeah. He's having fun. Look, he's having fun. That's exactly it. And unfortunately, I just found it very unfunny. And when it mm. is funny, it's because the performer is overcoming the material. Mm. You know, Ben Schwartz is quite fun as the cocky but incompetent son. Uh, the I didn't write down his name, but there's basically Renfield goes and attends a support group uh, for people with bad bosses or d- abusive relationships in their lives. And the guy running it, it gives a very good comedic performance. Okay, That's good stuff. And then, yeah, you have this whole mob storyline and a lot of screen time is devoted to it and it doesn't have a really peak interest and distracts quite a bit from the gothic horror aesthetic mm. meets the real modern world kind of thing that they should be going for um the aesthetic of the film is best summarized by the logo seen in the trailer which is an uncomfortable blend of the light greeny blue of a generic comedy film and the deep purple to give it that slight horror kink and together they have this feel of something that is glossy and insubstantial. Like it looks like the logo for a new slushy or something like that. Mm. And it's quite bespeaking the sort of atmosphere of the film. Early on, there is a segment that recreates the 1930s universal horror film, only with Nicolas Cage and Bella Lugosi's place and Holt as Renfield. And that's quite fun because it's relatively subdued. Uh, Cage is tr- actually trying to do Bella Lugosi and managing it quite well. Mm-hmm. And the excessive violence that then happens is a surprising and, you know, fun subversion. Mm. But then as the film goes on, the constant excess of everything, the comedic performances, the violence, and in particular the cinematography, which is just this garish bright light in everything, like green tint to everything, it just disinclines you to be impressed by any one thing that it's doing. Um, but having said that, it played well to the crowd I was in, yeah. and the person I was with certainly enjoyed it, so maybe it's just my typical aversion to big budget american comedy feels which just feels antonymic to me the idea of big comedy like comedy should be small and intimate yeah there's there's plenty of times when big comedy has worked for me the problem with comedy is when it isn't working it's quite hard to say why Mm. and i think this film only really has the one joke and it just kind of plays it to death 
Sure. Um, then you find the characters and their relationships are kind of simplistic and lacking, and that just leaves you with the action sequences, which have some imagination, but a lot of shortcuts have been taken. It's amusing to see the f- ideas they've come up with, but then just fix CGI jam. Mm. Doesn't really mean it has any impact. So two stars for effort, but it's skill that's lacking. Ah, okay. Shame. Yeah. Ooh, next one, though. We've both seen... <laughs> Is it the D&D Dungeons movie? and Dragons, Honor Among Thieves. Honor. 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 Honor Among Thieves. I have seen this. I saw it in Japan. Yeah. <gasps> That's such a cool way of seeing it. Not I the Japanese put in even better bits. <laughs> they used alternate takes that were funnier. <laughs> yes, definitely. <laughs> did it have Japanese subtitles? Yes. Ooh, very cool. Yes. I did <laughs> have a momentary panic. Like, like a so foreign I'm... film for them. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, I did have a panic partway through. I was like, oh God, this is a fantasy film. Someone could speak in fantasy language at any moment. (gasps) Fortunately, and they did at one point. Uh, Fortunately, Uh they double subbed it at that point into English and Japanese. I was like, oh, thank goodness you knew you were playing this to an English. Like (laughs) the fact that it was a subbed screening meant that there might also be like a lot of English speakers in the audience. Yeah. I remember um, having that anxiety in Cannes. I went, I made all the effort to get out to Cannes and was sat in the audience and then suddenly thought, hang on a minute, is this going to be in any way subtitled? I'm in France in a foreign film festival. Why would they have made put that it concession but it was double subbed? Good. Okay, good. Fr- French and English good, for everything. Good, good, I wouldn't have put it past France to be like, no, we no. do it only in French. You are in France. <laughs> so? Please uh, make more of an effort. Yes. Oh. Mm. Sorry. Mm. You're not forgiven. Uh, D&D D&D Roll for initiative Because we've had a random encounter With a new D&D movie And perhaps the very Whoa. best thing about it Is how few annoying references like that it makes Yeah Yeah Agreed Absolutely Little history uh, It's based on the tabletop role playing game Created in 1974 mm-hmm. Hey I don't know Maybe people don't know Yeah, yeah. my parents don't know much about D&D Hey mum and dad yeah, well, there you go Hey uh, infamously previously adapted to the screen in the year 2000 but whereas that film came the year before fantasy movies became mainstream with Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings this film is actually very timely because D&D is really having its moment right now mm-hmm. um, hit podcasts references and popular television shows the last six years I want to say have been quite transformative yeah. for the game I would agree and so cue the cynical movie adaptation am I right time to cash mm-hmm. in uh, the plot concerns a bard named Edgin Darvis. <laughs> I've not said that out loud before. I don't think it comes <laughs> up. Played by Chris Pine and a barbarian named Holger Kilgore, played by Michelle Rodriguez, mm. uh, who have wound up in a fantasy prison in the middle of an Arctic tundra. They escape and assemble a team to complete a heist involving a cast of wacky characters. <laughs> what I love about it is that it feels incredibly earnest and well-considered without being insular or like cloyingly self-aware yes um early on pine's character is singing a song whilst doing his prison labor and the guard admonishes him and it would be so easy to have him say something like sorry i'm a bard it's what we do and mm-hmm. then the voiceover comes in saying in this world i'm a bard that means and it's oh yeah, yeah. no nothing like that just little meta jokes and references that you'll get if you know but you won't be disturbed by if you don't yes which is lovely but yeah, this is the best possible approach and one that lends itself so naturally to satisfying fans and general audiences. You just wonder why it's not used for everything. It's just a sincere telling of a story that feels like it was generated during a D&D campaign. Mm-hmm. Like the, the writing process was a D&D campaign and that they just told that as sincerely as possible as mm-hmm. if it was, you know, a great adaptation of fantasy literature. Yeah. 
the adventure is episodic, as if it had been broken into sessions, um, but serving a general overall goal. And it has an improvised feel that lends itself to character moments and comedic scenes where it actually feels like the action is moving forward because the characters, this is how they would do it. Mm. You know, they're not being pulled along on some premise. They are making things happen. And it means that there is a tone of silly people trying to do something important together, which is the premise of D&D. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, all, all too often that is what makes a great fantasy and adventure movie. And it's the best, it's the freshest I've felt it since, like, Guardians of the Galaxy. Mm. That sense of just silliness coming together for something important. Uh, the script actually comes care of a few different writers working at different stages and is kind of an amalgamation of different scripts, which kind of, I think, helps create that sense of chaos that <laughs> is so natural to this thing. It actually has had several different writers. Um, the story is often ridiculous, but the stakes are well established mm-hmm. and feel real. And the world leans more Jackson than Marvel, uh, but actually feels like its own thing. It feels like the world of D&D told seriously. The monsters, the creatures, the aesthetic, everything feels like that very strange D&D, which is something of a mix between different historical periods you know mm. like uh, the med- the middle ages but with pirates yeah kind of everywhere <laughs> has that feel it's not out of place in deity if someone whips out a musket no <laughs> it just kind of feels right or a samurai walks in it's just mm. this very anachronistic kind of uh, scape uh yes there's some unconvincing cgi here and there but just as much real sets and actual things that they're doing which is great and it's a lot easier to take the iffy cgi when you're actually enjoying what it's being used for mm. The action and effect sequences are really well choreographed and just genuinely very inventive. Um, you know, my my favorite is uh, when the the druid has to escape from a um, the palace yes. and it's just morphing into different animals yes, and to try and get away. Mm-hmm. It's, oh, it's just great. It reminds me of X Men mm-hmm. because you're just seeing them use their powers in ways that are fun yes. and exciting and inventive, and you love that. Uh, Then the cast, a crucial element for this kind of film to work. And not only are you seeing some old hands doing their very, doing what they do best, you know, Hugh Grant being charming, Michelle Rodriguez, and probably my favorite role of hers. There's always something a little, I don't know, unnatural about Michelle Rodriguez, even when her presence is fun. But here, I really felt like she fit right in. Mm. And I enjoyed that. Um, And she seemed to be having fun, which I think is great. Um, But then the film gives them young talent a chance to shine. Uh, Sophia Lillis uh, from It Parts 1 and 2 is fantastic as the aforementioned uh, tiefling druid. Mm-hmm. Justice Smith, who has been around for a bit in movies like Jurassic World 2 and Detective Pikachu, but is so charismatic that's, here as the inexperienced wizard. That's where I knew him from, Detective yeah, Pikachu. There he is. He's so there good we in go. this. Yeah, He's he was so great charming in this. and funny. He was very funny. <laughs> I liked him a lot. I liked him a lot. And of course, uh, TV actor, ooh, Regé Jean Page, perhaps, as the fabulously dreamy mage. Uh, oh, paladin. the paladin. Yeah. I saw a picture of him again today on Twitter and was just like, <laughs> yes. Damn. Damn. Perfectly Damn. cast. Perfectly yeah, cast. Yeah, really perfectly mm. cast what he is. He's, yeah, really yeah. fun. But he Perfectly doesn't written the... as well. That character is superb. Yeah. It's And it's <laughs> a fun character. It's like you said, it's a fun character for a general audience. But if you've played yeah. D&D yes. and you've played with a paladin <laughs> character before, you yep. know this is a perfect send up of what a paladin is. Yes, and you yeah. understand why they don't stick around for too long. No. <laughs> Why it kind of gets in the way when you're telling a sort of yeah. wacky story and why often paladin characters end up reclassing. Yeah. Um, yeah. And the comic relief works really well. It doesn't detract from the stakes of the film. And you actually buy into them a little as the gang of friends 
on an adventure and really that's all you need mm, yeah. also the music was good enough to be noticeable which is rare enough in modern blockbusters but there were sequences where i was like wow this is good music mm. it's four stars for me i think it's nothing Agreed. necessarily game changing but it should be a new standard in what all blockbusters should be trying to achieve so definitely ones that are trying to adapt a hot property yes and make something that appeals to fans and general audiences this was a great example yeah um absolutely we've only had a couple of very nerdy terrible friends express disappointments in yeah, some awful of the, awful um, friends awful people who wouldn't enjoy anything anyway yeah i've got no taste <laughs> whatsoever <laughs> i i would give this four stars as well i came out of it really enjoying it yeah and and i saw it with our good it's friend sarah time. and we both said we mm. really hope you know i'm glad we saw this in the cinema because i really hope it encourages them to make more films yeah right like I, I hope so and i hope mm. it makes people take notice yeah. and sort of see the it engagement was. that happened with the property yeah. it just didn't feel cynical at all not to me Mm-mm. and i was i was thoroughly when they first announced it i was thoroughly prepared oh, yeah. for it to be terribly cynical and a cash i think grab. this is a new answer you know when everyone anyone says oh what's a movie that you thought was going to be terrible and were really pleasantly surprised you would say the lego movie mm, because yes obviously a lego movie is going to be terrible i think D now fills that space yeah. as well of just yeah. How is this so good? It's way yeah. better than it ought to be. Yeah. And another good, they did, mm. uh, they dropped a, like a five minute um, trailer a few weeks in Ooh. advance where it was, um, you know, when they just do an entire scene and you're like, oh, have you just done a trailer that's just the only good funny scene from the film? Right. And that's it. But no, they managed to do, they clipped this scene out, which is funny, mm. but it's still not the end of the joke. That joke gets oh. further developed and um, <laughs> it's the graveyard <laughs> scene. Oh, the graveyard scene's great. So it's the and, uh, first scene of the whole graveyard bit. Yeah. And you're like, the see, that was good. You managed to like draw me yeah. in with this good joke. But it's when it comes up again in the film, I wasn't bored because yep. it continued as well. Yep. And yeah. if you see the film in Australia, all the corpses are Auntie Donna. <laughs> oh, are they? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Only in Australia. <laughs> wow. That's really good. <laughs> so if you've been hoping to make that trip. Now's yeah. the time. Now's the time. <laughs> yeah. Catch it now. Oh, yeah. It's really good when a tie-in product just isn't as cynical as you feared it was mm-hmm. going to be. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Super Mario Brothers. Mm-hmm. Yay. So at the beginning of this film, I wondered which animation studio was responsible for it because we had adverts for a new Disney film, Elementals, which I don't know what to make of. Um, yeah. yeah, I don't either. No. Uh, and as Sony films, you know, we just had, you know, we've got Spider-Verse coming up. Oh, yes. A new Spider-Verse film. So Sony's busy. And we mm. just had DreamWorks with The Last Wish. So, you know, I wonder who this could be in such a tight period. And then a minion walks out and I'm like, oh, it's Illumination. Uh. And I get a keener sense of what I'm in for. <laughs> Everything that I feared D&D would be Super Mario Brothers were... Um, <laughs> A stunningly generic fantasy adventure film with Mario and Nintendo aesthetics mm-hmm. and elements strewn haphazardly about the place as set dressing. The film consists of three things. One, very on the nose, stop the movie and pay attention to this, references <laughs> to Nintendo products. Right. Oh, look, Luigi's ringtone is the GameCube startup tune. Let's stop the movie and <sighs> listen to that on its own for a couple of seconds just to make sure no one misses it. It's constant things like that. That's in the first five minutes. Secondly, very on-the-nose music choices. Kind of like family movies from our childhood. That's fine. Yes, that's throughout. But then I imagine it's just that for two hours straight. (laughs) It's not, because sometimes they go and run through Brooklyn. So how about No Sleep Till Brooklyn by the Beastie Boys? Oh, okay. Right. There's going to be a fight scene, so why not the Kill Bill tune? Oh, 
yeah, Mario needs to be a hero. How about I'm holding out for a hero? Of course. Which I would attribute to trying to please bored parents, but even that is out of touch because the parents of young children who want to see this movie, they need 90s music pandering now. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Find a 90s track that uses the word hero yeah. in it. There must be one. Although maybe some, I am... Have some dogs come out and play that. <laughs> I think fondly of holding out for a hero because it was in the Shrek, Shrek? the original yeah, Shrek. that's the thing. So... For me, it's an almost 90s song, just because it got That'll a revival then. And then you've got oh, Beastie Boys, which I think is the 90s, and Kill Bill. Mm-hmm. So maybe that's it. It's just second generation. Yeah. Oh, God. The film is just screaming at you every moment, from its candy-coloured, diabetes-inducing visuals <laughs> to its constant pop songs, to quite literally just close-ups of faces screaming at you. Yay. Speaking of lines, the voice acting. Mm-hmm. Chris Pratt has been fairly roundly mocked for doing the mildest Italian accent ever heard on film. But that is very representation- representative of the voice acting in this film. Mm-hmm. Anya Taylor-Joy is here doing her best as Princess Peach and we all love her. But Jen... <laughs> Do, oh, is, our, is our opinion swayed by the her. fact that she's incredibly beautiful? <laughs> I feel like that's hardly relevant. I couldn't see how hot she was during the movie. I can yeah. just remember from all the experience yeah. we've had. Uh, Jen... How would you go about uh, voicing an aging monkey king called Cranky Kong? Enthusiastically. I'm not going to do it. Do you want me to do it? (laughs) You can can have a go or you could just like describe what the voice would be like. I guess gruff and Mm. barrel chest from the chest. Oh, yeah. And maybe he's called Cranky Kong. And grumpy. Grumpy. Like grumpy. Yeah, exactly. It would definitely have some of that to it. Uh, are you sure that wouldn't be funnier if he just sounded like some dude, like Ray Romano or something? Mm. Yeah. Mm. There's a scene where Donkey Kong and Mario are talking to each other and they sound the same. Oh, dear. They sound the same because one of them's Seth Rogen and the other is oh Chris dear. Chris Pratt. Like, what happened to voice acting? Because this is my problem with The Last Wish, too. Yeah. Why is voice acting so tame in these animated movies? These are big, colourful characters. Get professional voice actors in to give them some life. Yeah. Kids don't know who Seth Rogen is, nor should they. Yeah. I did actually read an article about this in... It'll be The Guardian. Um, <laughs> about, yeah, the, this strange trend towards just put, slapping celebrities onto your children's movies. Yeah. To do it's voices again, just, when there are so professional cynical. voice actors out there who can do a better job. Yeah. Absolutely there are. Get anyone from the world of anime or video or vo- video games who are just actually making characters that you'll care about. Mm. Because, oh God, it's, it's really cynical and really annoying. At the very least, put Chris Pratt in the lead and then just fill out the rest of yeah, the Yeah, exactly. I can get wanting yeah. one person to draw people in. Yeah, exactly. But... <sighs> yeah. It's very frustrating. But look, in adapting, in adapting anything... You must ask, what is the core of this? Why do people love it? And does that translate to film? Mm. And the one I always go back to is the Hitman games, because they've never done it. There's a wonderful film to be made out of that franchise. Yeah. Essentially, Final Destination, where death is a menacing bald man who hilariously disguises <laughs> himself as various innocuous people. That, yeah. gr- great movies there to be made by that yeah, premise. With the right sense but exe- of humour. <laughs> with the right sense of with a dark sense of humour, that could be great. But mm. executives who have never actually engaged with the property just want to make Bourne but with a recognisable IP. So they just slap a bald guy in there mm. with a barcode on the back of his head and they think, oh, they'll get the nerds in. And it's, it's yeah. that with Mario, the core of those games are not the characters who hardly ever talk for, for a reason. <laughs> yeah. To make them as endearing as possible, they never talk and aren't really characters. Yeah. Um, and just 
there is a friend, you know, just so that there is a friendly face of the property. And it's not the world, which is attractive enough to keep you engaged, but you never want to explore. No. You never really want to explore the Mushroom Kingdom and be like, oh, I wonder what law there is behind all of this. No, it's bright and colorful. You want to bounce because off it. You want to bounce off it. <laughs> That's the core of this thing. You can't bounce off of things in this movie. There's, oh, it just, it doesn't translate to a non-participatory participatory non-participatory medium mm. you know it could do you know parkour physical comedy these things are kind of have platformy elements and there are some platforming out oriented action sequences and one of two of them are a bit fun mm. early on they have to run from one part of brooklyn to another no sleep to brooklyn and <laughs> it goes to a side view of them like running up oh okay things yeah. and like fire escapes and jumping over stuff and it's like okay that's kind of cute but in general, the film teaches you not to be involved in any of the action or concerned about anyone's well-being. Even for a kid's film, there is an aversion to peril. Before mm. the brothers travel to the Mushroom Kingdom, they are thrown harmlessly for a brick wall. Oh. So that's fine. And on several occasions, we see characters falling to their doom, only to grab a hold of a ledge that was clearly not there in the previous <laughs> shot of them falling to their doom. It's like, oh, that was there. There was a rope. It happens several times. Or a previously unseen character swings in to save them. Mm. And just... At no stage does a character get out of trouble through ingenuity, wit, or even perseverance. It's just luck. Mm. And luck has no place in Mario. <laughs> and you need to teach kids that. Or they'll be bad players. They'll be noobs forever. Yes, there, there is place for luck, Paul. Because uh, me and Sarah in, in Japan, we were in Japan recently. In Japan. Oh, yeah. Uh, oh, yeah Japan. We uh, played the um, Super Mario Kart um, oh, side by side in a... In a um, in an arcade one time and we oh, only played it once but i beat sarah that one time so i've got 100 percent record yeah. 100 record. that's not luck and, uh, Jen. that sounds like pure skill yeah thank you thank you mm. i say so sarah disagrees well sarah sounds a bit like a trash noob <laughs> <laughs> i would agree but you said it not me well you know where's their podcast to disagree with oh it's roll plus R. oh no she's <laughs> In Quest Fantastic, she's going to introduce a crappy character called Paulo Saltus. Yeah. He's just a lame wizard who scratches his butt with his wand. Yeah. Oh. There's a noob. Oh, no. I forgot mm. about Sarah Revenge. Yeah. <laughs> she has all the but power. She does all of it. I'm a terrible so friend who tricks you into saying mean things about her, so... Uh... <laughs> Love it. I um, want to watch the world burn. <laughs> you know, I got these scars. I fought with Sarah. I she fought with out. Sarah. Yeah, that's how you got those scars, those facial scars. So, <laughs> enough about Dangerous Mad Dog, Sarah Keith. Mm. It's, this is the, it's the kind of film where you actually become grateful for what would otherwise be shortcomings. Wow, mm. we're not spending any time with these characters. Good, good. Let's keep going. <laughs> the love story is really underdeveloped. Great. Don't want to don't see him try that. Let's, yeah. um, <laughs> let's just get to the ending, folks. This is only a 90-minute movie. Oh, good. Let's... Let's let's get there. That's the thing is it's oh good. And it's just the only people I can see getting anything out of this are particularly undemanding kids and just the one you know, the ones who struggle mm. to pay attention to films may well be involved. You know, this may well yell them into submission whilst the grandparents share fond memories of take on me by a ha. It's <laughs> it's one star. Kids deserve better and parents definitely do. It's so hard. <laughs> it's so hard being a parent, they don't deserve this. Mario didn't need a movie. He has Super Mario Odyssey. Go play that with your kids. Yeah. And go play Mario Kart, but yeah. not with that trash noob, Sarah Keith. <laughs> Seconded. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> so, yeah, Super Mario is very bad. But, yeah. you know, it's one of those things where you just think, oh, the Super Mario movie was bad? 
kill Supreme. Like, fine. Just, I hate movies that make you feel dumb for expecting better of them. Yeah. I'd like to be surprised. I want to be, I would, I would like it not to be a surprise that a movie that costs this much money be good. I know that sounds naive. <laughs> so much gets thrown behind it. You just think basic things would go in. Yeah. But no, there's no guarantee that they'll have actually gotten someone in who knows how to tell a story or make something interesting. Mm. They'll have just found someone who can bring it in under budget. Well, it's about money, isn't it? It's about money. You know, but that is the problem with a movie like D&D. It makes you think that any premise, no matter how cynical, may have the potential to become an excellent film. But a great deal of blockbusters really are just as annoying, crass, and thoughtless as they look. Shazam 2. (laughs) Fury of the Gods. So, oh, I didn't even finish the plot rundown. Great. The movie picks up sometime after the last movie. Um, yeah, great. It's, uh, yeah, that's fine. There's Shazam. He, he says the word Shazam and a little kid becomes a big superhero man. Yeah. Uh, played by Zachary Levy. And his family all also have that power now. And now there are witches who are oh, coming so and do. they want to. I've actually yeah. seen the first one. Oh, right. No, yeah, the first one was it. fine. It, yeah, was it, was all, fine. it was all right. It was fine. It was perfectly fine. It, did, it wasn't very memorable. It didn't stick with them. No, very precisely. Much. I just remembered I've seen it. Yeah. Well, there's another one which you'll just remember you've seen if you ever have the misfortune. No, <laughs> won't. No, that's fair. The big issue with the first Shazam was that it never felt like uh, Levy and Asher Angel were playing the same character. Mm. You go from a troubled, moody young man to a ludicrous sort of man-child who looks like a cartoon and acts like a five-year-old. And now that could work if you play on the angle that being Shazam brings out his childish and playful side, the yeah. side that Billy, you know, has repressed from his regular life because of the horrible experiences he's had. But there's no change in either of them as the film goes on there's not a sense that shazam you know the wonder wears off and the real him comes out and there's not a sense of being shazam influencing billy you know it's the stanley ipkiss and the mask had more in common than billy and shazam (laughs) it's just true there's no sense of them being the same person and that issue not only continues here but has expanded to include his superpowered siblings almost all of whom feel like caricatures of the weirdly much more nuanced child performances (laughs) <laughs> um, the, the adults are all just following Levy's lead, I think. Um, yeah, which this film s- seems to have no interest in because they all spend the entire film as their a- irritating adult versions. Yay! Even sequences that would have made far more sense and be far less incongruous if they were being played by the child actors. The young wow. actors feel like a cohesive family and it's weird that they had mm. no faith in that. It's, um, you need less... Um... Fewer uh, risk assessments if your your actors are just adults most of the That's time. That's true, and you can make them work harder, and yeah. they're hot, and you can objectify them more in the marketing. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's the problem, and yeah, with evidence lately that superhero the superhero star may be finally in decline. Mm. There really is something remarkable about DC's ability to just really encapsulate the sheer mundanity of the modern Hollywood blockbuster. It's staggering in its own way, um, just so lacking in imagination, humour, style, substance and purpose that you just wonder how anyone summed up the actual enthusiasm to show up for work at this damn thing. It just... <laughs> it, yeah. They still expect you to come and see it and spend your money on it and bring your kids. And it's just audiences are catching on a little and the film is expected to be a big bomb, this oh, one. Okay. Struggling to make back even its production budget. Wow. Yeah resulting in the bizarre spectacle that's honestly been more interesting than the film of seeing the film's director and star both take to social media to accuse the studio of not properly supporting it, accuse The Rock of sabotaging it by not 
allowing enough cross-pollination with Black Adam. Another bomb. So I don't know how that would have worked. And of course, blaming the audience for not getting it. Levy even put out videos of himself pleading with people to come and see it because it's a good movie, he he promises. Because... And that's probably because his future in the new rebooted DCU depended on this film. Mm. Whoops. I guess he'll have to focus <laughs> on being truly awful on Twitter instead. Yay. <laughs> He's a bad guy. There's no sense of purpose here. Conflict mm. is mentioned, like the fear of abandonment and self-worth issues, but there's just no tie into the overall story being told, such as it is. So it really does feel like paint by numbers. On the plus side, Jamon Honzu uh, plays the old wizard, and he is as charismatic, imposing, and charming as you like. Mm-hmm. He's really funny in a in a really good way, as you want a belligerent old wizard to be. Mm-hmm. Rachel Ziegler, who I previously described as when she was in uh, West Side Story as being so beautiful, she looked like a special effect. Yes, she does. She's back in this, and she's very charming. Mm-hmm. And uh, she's also really funny, incidentally, and charming, which mm. she comes over, comes over a little bit in this. Nice. Um, but the best all-around character in this film is Freddy. Shazam's younger brother, who serves as comedic relief, but is frankly a much more interesting lead than Shazam. <laughs> Billy, he's uh, yeah, Freddie's played by as well as an adult by Adam Brody, but really steals the film as child as a child, played okay. by Jack Dylan. Jack Dylan Grazer, sorry, who's really charismatic. I think he's been in a few of these sort of kid-oriented adventure movies. I don't think he was in Stranger Things, but he was in something. Have a look. Have a look, uh, Jack Dylan Grazer. Um, it's a shame that his dialogue is terrible, but hey, that's this movie. But he himself is, yeah, a really good lead <laughs> for this movie, and the filmmakers know it because they actually let him be the kid for most of the movie. I don't know what I know him from. No? He's 19. Hmm? Well, he's got a future ahead of him, I think, because he's really good. Although he might, to be yeah. honest, he's really he great as voices. a kind of child actor, so mm. it he might be tricky He's done a few voices. Okay. Well, more power to him. He was easily the best thing in this cool uh, but that's it really it's stunningly generic if people want to know what the standard blockbuster looked like in 2022 if it is 2023 even but yeah this is where we're at and it's where we've been for about 10 years now it's a shame one star wow yeah i didn't like it jen <laughs> i didn't like either of these movies and i'm upset that they exist <laughs> and and now we have to contemplate the future of DC because the extended universe is coming to an end and is going to be replaced with the DCU, the DC universe. They took out the extended. It's not going to be extended anymore. And that's going to be, uh, well, it's going to be headed by James Gunn. And I think the idea is that the next movie, The Flash, uh, starring even more problematic man, Ezra Miller, who held a family at gunpoint for a, a while. Um Ooh. Yep, I don't know. It's crazy they're making a movie with him. It's crazy they're making a movie with him. <laughs> they sure can pick him. Um, he will be, yeah, in this movie that introduces the notion of different timelines and worlds in order to uh, essentially start over whilst keeping some of the same actors, the less problematic sure. ones, perhaps, uh, slash the ones who aren't really, really, really bored of this. <laughs> the more uh, willing so, ones. Yeah. So, goddamn you, and into the Spider Verse for making this. For making every cynical movie producer's dreams come true. Mm. Because now you can just do that. We'll have multiple universes and we can resurrect these dead old franchises and make more X Men Days of Future Past. Oh, you're right. That did come first. Yeah. I got yep, really I think... excited when that film came out. I remember I coming out the movie. cinema with Sarah Keep and us being like, wow. I love that movie too. I mm. really like X Men movies. Yep. Yeah. Um, and I have enjoyed many of them, mm-hmm. not the obviously bad ones. 
No, we all know but some of the best superhero movies of the mm. last 20 years, like X2, Days of Future Past, and Logan. First Class. Oh, First Class, yeah. Love that as well. Yeah, and then Logan yeah. is like its whole own special mm. thing. Anyway, yeah. superb. Yeah. Yeah. Well, but, uh, coming, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. But they've even roped in Michael Keaton to play Batman again. Oh. And it's like, wow. did you even see Birdman, Michael Keaton? <laughs> do you not remember <laughs> the whole thing was don't go back and do superhero movies? And... <laughs> Okay. Do you know, knowing all of that makes this a really weird watch, Shazam 2, because it's like seeing a shop put out new stores whilst the closing downsides are already on the wall. It just, mm. it makes it feel even more like a cul-de-sac. Not just creatively, but narratively. Sorry, I'm eating a scone. No, no worries. <laughs> <laughs> I've been trying to do it subtly and then I just shoved a whole, I just shoved a big bit in. I suddenly really needed it. <laughs> I really did. Um, <laughs> sounds like a bad film. It's a really bad film and it's a weird thing and hopefully the DCU will yeah. change. I haven't seen a DC film in probably since Shazam 1 yeah, that I accidentally saw. So boring. Um, yeah. Because the Flash isn't even the end of the DCEU. There's going to be Aquaman 2 before it leaves. I didn't see that. And that's going to be interesting to see how much they've scaled down Amber Heard's performance and how much they've... Not to get into <laughs> that whole thing, but just... It's so hard to put out of mind the complicated personal lives of the dc people Why? it's weird how marvel never had this issue apart from chris pratt yeah, yeah. And... oh and letitia wright and oh gal gadot oh she wasn't in marvel she was she's DC. not marvel yeah. okay yeah. she's decent so there dc again <laughs> yeah there we go uh... God. Uh, yeah they sure wow. can pick him anyway forget all that jen because the saving grace of modern action cinema has a new installment Praise the Lord, Keanu Reeves is here to say this. It's John Wick 4. No spoilies. <laughs> no spoilies, I promise. Because we're going to see it again in two days' time. We well, are, but again, I can't again wait. Again for you, first time for me. <laughs> I typically prefer sequels to not just be bigger versions of what worked last time. I prefer <laughs> to see a twist or some variation or even a critique of the previous movie or franchise. And this movie is not that. This is more another bigger, John Wick please. movie, but it's bigger and it's more ambitious and I loved it a lot. Good. It represents everything I love in action cinema, and no one else is going to the level of effort to make sequences like this as interesting as they are. So mm. I'm really just happy for them to keep doing this over and over again. Yeah, just, just repeatedly. Ma- <laughs> just creative variations. I mean, the plot, if it so can be called, is John Wick <laughs> continues his quest for vengeance against the shadowy cabal of assassins that have taken against him, I think because he killed the guy at the end of the second one. Yes. Is the main instigating action. <laughs> After he killed the guy who killed his dog in the first one. Yes. Yeah. Look, ever so, since someone killed his dog, John Wick has been getting revenge. Just he's a got a very short temper. <laughs> <laughs> and he makes some really dumb decisions. But he's good with a gun. <laughs> That's, That's all you need all in this matters. world. It really is. The action scenes are just wonderfully inventive. There's so much effort to make every one of these sequences feel special and different. Mm. You know, how can we make this new? You know, can we introduce a new weapon and base our base our immaculately elaborate choreography around it? Can we move the camera a bit diff- differently? Can we throw in a new wild card element like staging a fight in the middle of traffic? There's just mm. there's so much to consider and appreciate about how this film stages and presents its set pieces because mm. it knows that's what people are here for, and the filmmakers appear to genuinely be excited to surprise and delight you with this. Like, hey, we've got a new trick to show yay. you <laughs> we've got a new thing and you're gonna love it and we can't wait to show it to you and you just think yay 
Yay. Thank you for caring about my experience. Whereas with Shazam, to go back to that, mm. you just felt like the director said to the second unit and the special effects team, uh, Dragon Attacks the City. Do that. <laughs> oh, okay. Do you, want, yeah. do you want anything in particular? Buildings falling down, superhero flies against a stream of fire whilst going, ah, to imply that it's like hard to do that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> who cares who cares who cares john wick reminds you of how it should be done and it's doing it for less money i expect i haven't checked but i bet shazam 2 costs like five times what john wick 4 cost shall i, I google just, it please do please find out how much shazam fury of the gods cost and compare that to john wick 4 and i bet a lot of that went on salary john wick 4 production budget uh, uh i'm just going based on wikipedia right mm-hmm. that's fine Production budget for Shazam Fury of the Gods is showing, Wikipedia says, 110 to $125 million. That sounds about right. John Wick 4 production budget says $100 million. Okay, so a little less. A little less, but still, yeah, that is kind of surprising yeah. that yeah. that they'll have spent more money on... Uh... I mean, it shows. The money feels yeah. like it's up on screen um, because it's just spectacle. You know, it's just... Oh, hold on, I don't want to... Uh, okay, let me just say... I don't want to say that. I don't want to say that. I don't want to say that. <laughs> nope, I don't want to say that. That's all. That's spoiling too much. Let's leave all of that. Great. The other two most delightful things about John Wick, after the incredible action sequences, are the cast and the world of the franchise, which is good mm. because the series may well be banking on those two things as they expand beyond the core films to make you know a wider John Wick universe. So, starting with the cast, Reese is great. He still says things weird, <laughs> which is very endearing. <laughs> He's a very endearing man. Doesn't he have like a hundred word lines in this? A hundred oh, words so, or something. Yeah. He says like a ridiculously small number of number of words it, in this one. It's it's quality over quantity. Oh, yeah, I know, I know. I'm really excited to hear him say like, <clears throat> "I don't sit at the table." Yeah, <laughs> what a special guy! It's such a special dude, and yeah, he's a very endearing man in spite of his habit of brutally murdering everyone sharing a frame <laughs> with him, and you just want him to succeed. <laughs> oh yeah. Little way. <laughs> oh yeah. Supporting cast. Now, tragically, we have lost Lance Reddick mm-hmm. recently, and his character, Sharon, is uh, retired within the film in such a way as does feel respectful and touching, Aww, which, is, nice. which is lovely. They found a natural way to sort of say goodbye there. Donnie Yen is here playing another Ooh. blind fighter, another reference to Zatoichi. And I do wonder how this Chinese man, Donnie Yen, feels about his second tribute to Zatoichi. But <laughs> there we are. Uh, he's great. I really enjoy him in this. Mm. He plays a very resentful man who is manipulated <laughs> into serving the high table against his old friend John Wick. Um, but his performance is surprising and quite charmingly petulant at times. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, charming, but, you know, I'm very deep, but also cheeky, which is good fun. Yay. I enjoy that. Enjoy seeing Donnie Yen being cheeky. <clears throat> um, other treats include Ian McShane and Lawrence Fishburne. They're both back and having a whale of a time, as they always <laughs> do. Oh, Bill Skarsgård has a delicious French accent. Yay! It's, oh, it's so good. <laughs> <laughs> He's perfect as like the super posh villain of the piece. Nice. Um, a snotty pinnacle of entitlement. Uh, Hiroki Sanada and uh, Rina Sa- Sawayama are very convincing as a kick-ass but loving father-daughter team of cool. killers. Uh, Shamia Anderson is really good as a wild card, a bounty hunter who wants to protect Wick until the bounty on him is high enough for him to collect. Oh, that's is- fun. That's fun. He's a very unpredictable little presence in the movie. But his role gets more complicated as we go. 
So cast are brilliant. And just, yeah. as I'm already saying this, it's just, it's so, the world is so playful. It's just, yeah. you what can already you... tell they've expanded deliciously to include set pieces in Osaka, Berlin and Paris. And as you're in these places, you're learning more about how the John Wick world works in these places. And you just want to yeah. see more of it. I love it. I love it so yeah. much. I just love the fact that literally everyone is an assassin <laughs> it's, in yeah. this world. Almost everyone is an assassin. You're like, who think... does other jobs? People's yeah. yeah. He'll walk through a park and like a dozen that was people it. surrounding him will be like, their phones that will was go it. off the... and they'll all look up. <laughs> I love the it. The game changing moment was the end of John Wick Two, where mm. he gets the hit taken out on him, and he just looks and suddenly everyone in the park stops, like the Matrix. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's just, okay, it's just well... good. It's good humor. <laughs> yeah, it's really. There's not one rando just walking no. their dog through the place. It's, they're all assassins. It's entirely illogical, and I love that they just uh, they never address that. They just yeah. like what? Oh, and the music's great too. Oh, good. Yeah, good. I think it's Tyler Bates. I don't know, but it's, it's very good. Five stars. Five stars. It's perfect. Yeah. All four of these movies are perfect. We're so lucky to have them. Yeah, I we can't are. wait to see what comes next. I love them so much. Go see it. I all of you go so see this. Much. So and fun. other filmmakers, please start ripping this up. Off. Uh, <laughs> rip the idea of effort off. <laughs> This novel concept. Ugh. Trying. So, uh, somebody said the other, they were doing a list of twin films and they put up John Wick and The Equalizer. It's like, no. No. John Wick has no parallel. No, absolutely not. No. We're finished with blockbusters. Thank God. We ended on a high note. Cool. Let's segue to smaller movies with a genre that I believe exists between the two. Horror. <gasps> and already it's time for a new Scream movie. Okay. Scream 6, so Scrissixum. Scrissixum. I don't know. You could put a 6 on the A, I think. It'd be all right. It's a scris- yeah, maybe. Scrissixum. You could put most letters where the E or the A are. I feel like nobody ever... Nobody, <laughs> yeah. Like... You can take vowels out of most words and we'll still understand what... You can have yeah, a good they, guess. Have they didn't have guess. the guts to replace the S with a 5 uh, mm. for the fifth one. 5 cream. <laughs> 5 cream. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> that makes sense. Yeah. So following the events of Five Cream, uh, which served as a legacy sequel and soft reboot, God Almighty, uh, shifting the attention to the next generation of Woodsboro survivors, uh, specifically Sam Carpenter, played ably of a little dolly by uh, Melissa Barrera, and her more interesting sister, played by Jenna Ortega, and their friends Mindy and Chad, uh, Jasmine Savoy Brown, and Mason Gooding. Uh, Mason Gooding, son, son of Cuba Gooding Jr. Oh, I remember Ooh. reading that, being like, "Wait, why didn't he get the G- oh right? Yeah, he's not Jim." <laughs> I thought you just get you get everything from you the surname what? onwards from your dad, right? It confused me too. <laughs> but wait, that's not all of it. Oh, I see. Yeah, not really. Like, yeah, cool. Oh, uh, the film is written and directed by the same people as the last film. Um, I really did not enjoy the last film. I found it mm-hmm. deeply frustrating and was almost hostile to its audience. I thought. Uh, the film was not me. <laughs> yeah, me. I was. Anyone who tells me they like Scream Five, I am usually quite hostile, which makes this a very big surprise because this is the first Scream movie I have enjoyed in twenty-five years. Wow. Scream Two was the last one I liked this much, and that was ninety-eight. Wow. Yeah. Why is it good? Well, for me, it's all about the horror set pieces. Every Scream movie is about these big scare sequences and the connective tissue that strings them together. And there are sequences in this that I can point to as great examples of how to build tension and keep a chase sequence interesting. Because so much of this franchise has been people getting chased around an enclosed space by a clumsy teenager in a mask. Mm. 
but this film mixed things up. There's a sequence involving a precarious ladder bridge with the killer at one end and you know the heroes at the other, and they have to get across. There's a sequence store. Um, there's a sequence in a convenience store where the killer has a shotgun and is stalking our main characters, and it's really tense. They're trying to stay quiet. You know, there's a sequence on a train full of people in costumes. Fun. And they don't know where the danger is coming from. It mixes things up and it keeps you on edge, not knowing what to expect next. It surprises you a little. Right from the start, the opening sequence has this cute little subversion uh, on an opening Scream sequence that actually feels exciting as opposed to the irritating start of Scream 4 with all its fake-out openings. Mm. And the film manages to be clever without being self-satisfied, which is a struggle for this franchise. <laughs> the other big fra- trademark is, of course, speaking of um, self-satisfied, the other big trademark is self-awareness and meta. You know, the con- everyone talks about horror movies, yeah. the rules of the horror movie. And in this sense, the film, once again, is far less obnoxious than its immediate forebear. Um, in fact, most of the meta-conversation is restricted to one exchange, you know, because each movie has talked about the different set of rules you need to follow in order to survive this particular unique positioning of the film that they're in. The first movie, how to survive a slasher film. Second sure. movie, how to survive a sequel. Then mm. a trilogy. Then a remake. Then a requel. And now there's a really funny moment where it's like, oh my god, we're in a franchise entry (laughs) it's just like okay fine there's not a particular set of rules here it's just gonna be bigger and bloodier than the first one and the film does really well to gloss over that aspect because although it's the trademark of the series i've always found it to be the weakest part Mm. because it never affects character actions and basically people just say what's likely to happen and then it happens with no subversive element to it so yeah i'm glad they don't do too much of that there was some controversy uh, regarding the lack of Nev Campbell, who left due to pay dispute, and I'm sure that there is particularly awful, probably somewhat sexist aspects to that, which are going to make it not fun to look into. But for me, it's not such a bad thing, because none of the legacy characters have really brought anything to this franchise past the end of their trilogy, so far as I'm concerned. And sure. often they represent the baggage of this franchise that makes it frustrating for me. I think we'd be better off just committing to new characters. And this film not only does that, but it does actually pull out one effective legacy character moment in the franchise, amazingly involving Courtney Cox, who is typically (laughs) the worst offender of not putting in any effort into these movies. So, yeah, that was surprising. Uh, But for the most part, with our new characters, especially um, as they charmingly brand themselves, it's uh, charmingly but reluctantly brand themselves the core four. Um, Which, yeah, and it's it's staggering because it involves characters like Chad and Mindy, who really annoyed me in the last film, and now they're really endearing. So what changed? I don't get it. It's something of a miracle, perhaps. I think one of the reasons this worked for me is because I did go and see it in a full house, sort of packed mm. cinema, opening night, everyone really excited. The, the people I were with were Scream fans. And you have to do that with a Scream movie, I think. I don't think mm. they hold up as well on their own. Sure. I think they're really good to watch with a crowd. And, yeah, I, I think that really helped. You know, you need people to gasp and laugh and scream at it. Mm. And, in fact, the narrative here really does eerily mirror my feelings towards the first two Scream movies, if you take five and six as being, like, a new start. Because on our recent rewatch for One Good Thing, Scream 1 did not hold up very well for me, but I was very yeah. impressed with Scream 2. And this is the same. Like, five was really annoying, and two and six, which is the second one. Jesus. Um <laughs> was very good so yeah this film is observed by the characters in the movie to be similar to the second story so cool i think it achieves the same thing it's a refinement and an expansion it's bigger better and more promising 
Now they just have to make sure they don't accidentally make Scream 3 in the next one. <laughs> but for the first time in a cent- this century, I'm actually excited to see more of this franchise. So four stars. Great. Very <laughs> good. Yeah. I don't want to watch it. No, None fine. of these horrors. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, that's fair. Yeah, that's fine. Is fun. It's fun. It's fun. But it's not worth seeing. If you were gonna, if you were gonna be like, okay, I'm gonna break my rule and I'm gonna watch one horror movie. There's not a chance in a million years I'd say Scream, any yeah, Scream, exactly. as being that thing. <laughs> exactly. God. So it's fine. All right. It's fine. You'd say Shazam two. I'd say Shazam two, the most horrifying thing I've mm-hmm. seen. <laughs> uh. Air. Oh, is this the Nike Air one? Yeah, it's the Nike Air thing. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, That's the kind of brand recognition they bank on. When Only because we talked about it Air. the other day. Oh, so we like, did. And I did immediately think about, because I Googled it, and there's some, like, 90s sci- or naughty sci-fi oh, action movie, shame. and I immediately thought of that one first. So, yeah, that would be like, the better no, one. And then was like, no, wait, why was I looking up that? <laughs> because of Nike Air. I would almost always rather be talking to you about Air than 1990s. <laughs> yeah. Nevertheless. Ben Affleck directs his old co-star Matt Damon in a biopic of the men who worked behind the scenes of Nike to bring the world the Air Jordan, a basketball shoe endorsed by Michael Jordan. (laughs) (laughs) Shocking. It's just a coincidence, though. Yeah, it's a coincidence. But yeah, it's about them. So it does have some of the qualities of an old Affleck-Damon film, and it's, it's surprising that it appears to have been written by some guy called Alex Convery, who I couldn't find out much about, so... This is his only credit, so maybe it's a Roderick Jane-style pseudonym for Datfleck. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, maybe it's yeah. them writing under a pseudonym, because it has a lot of the sort of things that you'd associate with the writers of Goodwill Hunting, except the sentiment. It has snappy dialogue, <laughs> troubled characters coping with the disappointment and ennui of their lives, and lots of shouting and swearing. Um, and it's one of those, it's one of those, that weird subgenre, the corporate underdog movie, which is kind of like a sports film. The drama mm-hmm. is made out of the board meetings and angry phone calls you know if we got mm. the account we got the account it's good you know it's it's well yeah. acted it's well written and affleck is if nothing else a very competent director when it comes to pacing and tension he cool. can make a sequence you know tense and feel important um the basketball talk does get a little obtuse here and there but mm-hmm. conversely the design talk of the film is incredibly simplistic oh. there's a scene where they're explaining how this shoe is going to be different and he asks whether or not he wants to focus on form or function and Damon, for some reason, has to do the sort of dog looking at a television face of, hmm? Like, <laughs> you've, you've heard, you could probably guess what form or function means, mate. Yeah. I don't know why you felt that this is the bit that needed to be carefully explained to an audience. Very strange. <sighs> the monumental, unescapable problem for me at the heart of this film is that they do not properly establish the stakes. Okay. We know what Air Jordans are. We know that they're a very successful product. Kind of it, really. We don't know why they're yeah. important or matter. So they felt confident taking a teleological approach to the history of this shoe, where the audience is aware of the end point, and we're going to experience the story just, mm. you know, assuming everything is leading to that point, and it's going to build up its origins, and, you know, we're going to appreciate the building of its mythology. You know, hey, do we have a name for this thing? Oh, yeah, we're thinking of uh, Air Jordans. Eh, maybe it'll grow on me. Kind of like cocky, yeah. kind of, ah, oh, isn't that great? Because it's obviously such a great name. But I'm, we're not there. <laughs> At least I wasn't there in terms no. of just knowing intuitively why this is a big deal. You know, but the problem is a little movie called One Man and His Shoes by Yemi mm. Bamiro 
which I saw at last year's film festival, a truly devastating account of the consequences of commodifying the American dream and the aspirational dreams of a community and then aggressively marketing them to a community that is defined by economic inequality. Mm. Nike told young people and specifically young black people that these shoes will make you fly, that you need these to be somebody, to achieve what Jordan achieved and escape the horrors of a country happy to keep you trapped in a working class from which there is no escape. Mm. People got shot for these shoes. You know, people Mm. got murdered to get a pair of these shoes because they are the way out. They are the status symbol you need to prove that you are somebody and not nobody, which is what the country actually thinks of you. And not only is all of that ignored in this film, but it absolutely, resolutely focuses on the white men that are making this (laughs) shoe happen. (laughs) Just trying to demonstrate the positive impact of the Air Jordan. The film focuses on how this Air Jordan thing set precedent for athletes to get better contracts when they sell their shoes. Mm. So when Air Kobe or whatever comes out, they're going to be able to get a much more impressive passive income. And it talks about how Jordan enjoyed billions of dollars in passive income for these shoes. Great. Good for him. I guess it's good that this obscene wealth is being spread slightly more evenly amongst the small elite group of athletes and shoe magnates. But forgive me if I don't punch the sky like I did at the end of Argo. (laughs) It's just more sinisterly than that. Because they paint Damon as the very familiar figure of the troubled genius who sees the future. He knows what Mm. this needs to be. And he just has to work hard and convince those hard asses to invest in him because there's no, you know, there's no cure for cancer at the end of this. There's no civil (laughs) rights movement that's going to win. There's no life-changing invention at the end of it. Because of that, the film feels like a celebration of just being a workaholic solely for its own sake. Yeah. You know, what if these guys weren't making Air Jordan? What if all these late nights and skipped weekends and no family life and driving across country without orders... What if that was just to land the big account, to make a company already wealthy, as they acknowledge in the film, Mm -hmm. beyond reckoning, just on non-basketball-related shoes, even richer? And most of the people in the audience will be involved, as, you know, most of my friends are, in boosting the personal wealth of their superiors. Why are we told that this is worthy of being a movie? Well, the CEO, played by Affleck, gives some of his money to charity, we're told at the end. Great. Cool, I'm glad he does that. By definition, he has no need to do that, but it's generous that he chooses to, I guess. Not having tax loopholes in the USA, but sure. <laughs> yeah, great. You know, don't pay any taxes, but just use to do charity instead. I guess that makes you a good, one of the good guys. Nike's frustrating because on one hand, they have recently stood behind a trans model that they hired and disregarded the backlash from online idiots uh, that mm. came about as a result. But on the other hand, still sweatshops. Yep, Still sweatshops. So. And a character even mentions the sweatshops in the movie, but it kind of gets overlooked with the same old excuse that, you know, oh, sure, slavery is bad, but I have my own kids to look out for. And it's like, oh, come on. <laughs> come on. So yeah. it's a problematic and kind of hollow movie, but it's well made. It's a compelling drama. You just have to suspend your disbelief. So it's two stars for me. I yeah, couldn't sounds... get over the ickiness of it. Yeah, sounds icky. Sounds it sounds icky, icky, but so much of it is my own baggage and what I'm bringing to it, just through yeah, my awareness but... of what this means. But uh, yeah. it just didn't convince me. It just didn't feel like, oh, yeah, it's great that this is all happening. Yeah, it doesn't sound at all like the kind of story. I'd, I'd have no investment <laughs> in this, I don't think. No, quite the opposite. <laughs> yeah, shame. Oh, well, it is a shame. All right. Something a bit more positive and nice. Mm-hmm. Suzumi. 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 
Uh, Makoto Shinkai returns following the movie that I think broke him into the mainstream in the West, uh, Your Name, uh, followed by his first follow-up to the slightly less well-received and popular Weathering With You. Mm -hmm. Uh, But now we have Suzumi opening in IMAX cinemas now, and from my experience, has been greatly underestimated in its opening night by uh, cinemas because it sold out in the first three cinemas I tried. (gasps) And then after I finally got a rubbish seat and a busy screen, it got moved to a much bigger screen so they could sell more tickets. Wow. So they're underestimating the um Yeah, the anime, anime fan. fan base. Yeah, Absolutely. it's big nowadays. Well I think people if it was a new Ghibli movie, they'd obviously Maybe. you know screen yeah. one big, but I don't think people are ready for the Makoto Shinkai to be quite as big as he's becoming now. So mm. we need to stop underestimating that. We actually, nobody told us, so when we went to the cinema, um our first warning was that the uh, certificate for Dungeons and Dragons came up. <laughs> and we're like okay and then like we weren't the only ones like half the cinema got up and quickly scurried out right okay should have made an announcement <laughs> yeah uh, yeah suzumi is a so here's the story suzumi is a high school student she bumps into a mysterious handsome college student and she decides to follow him naturally uh to a bunch of ruins where there's a door to, to nowhere where she opens accidentally unleashing a terrifying worm monster And to make things worse, she also accidentally released the guardian of the door from its bondage, allowing it to turn into a cute little cat friend. Um, And now a handsome handsome guy and plucky hero must travel across to Japan. uh, To Japan. In order to... (laughs) They they must travel across to Japan in order to hunt down the uh, irresponsible kitty who has decided to flee from its service. Um, And then the handsome guy gets turned into a derpy-looking three-legged children's chair. Wow. And he spends the whole rest of the movie as a chair, clip-clopping around that's fun it's great that's the way it really i fell for the film at that stage because it's an anime blockbuster so it's gonna have all the sound and fury that you expect you know the roaring and people running for this guy say yeah that's good there you know just Mm. all the stuff you expect and the big exclamations and the humor and all of the rest but this it's also just really sweet and charming and i think it's the closest to ghibli that we've ever seen shinkai get um but it's still full of his idiosyncrasies and in particular the bold beauty of his japan Mm. which feels weirdly far more affectionate to the modern, to mm. modernity, than Miyazaki or Takahata, where, you know, with their films, you always think of historic, natural Japan. Mm. You know, it's pagodas and screen doors and forests and stone bridges over streams and, you know, charming little rural Japan. But with Shinkai, you get the city and trains and mm. modern modern life, and it just feels exciting. And Water and light are a good distinction between the styles, actually, because in Ghibli, the water and the light always feels comforting and warm and beautiful and traditional. Whereas in Shinkai films, the light and the water is dazzling and bright and there's lens flare and it's sparkling and exciting. And that, of course, carries into the pacing of the film, Uh, the light tone and the music by the Radwimps, which once again achieves poignancy and excitement in equal measure. just makes it a slightly more, it feels younger, a Makoto Mm. Shinkai film. It feels like a younger form of anime. I always remember the first experience of Your Name, me and Goodman going to see it. And the movie starts and we thought, "Uh (laughs) uh-oh, what's going on? (laughs) This feels like an opening animated sequence to a TV show neither of us have watched. We don't know what's happening. Help us, please. Yes. Um, And that took a little while to wear off. This movie doesn't have that. It does start with a flashback, which then becomes very poignant later on. But Mm. it doesn't just drop you into sheer Japanese madness like Your Name did. Cool. Yeah. (laughs) I I watched Your Name on a plane. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. Made it even harder with that tiny screen and the terrible yeah. sound. <laughs> What's what is happening? <laughs> <laughs> Radwimps. Rad um, 
the one thing I loved about this is it started off with an advert for the soundtrack. So you had yeah. the actual live action Radwimps on a, a, a top of a tower in Japan uh, playing fun. their music. And it's like, that's fun. Yeah, this is a fun, fun little bringing us out of the Western cinema experience moment, which I liked. Yes. Um, yeah, and I love the central relationship between the two characters. Very cute. If possibly a little age-inappropriate love story, I don't quite know. <laughs> She's 17. He is a college student. I don't know what that might encompass. It could be 18, right? Could be 19. Could be. Could First be in his year, 20s, maybe? though. Could be. <laughs> Starts to... Don't think about it. Yeah. Hey, look, at least she's 17. At least she's 17, guys. Like, um, yeah, minimum. it's also, just like just like with Your Name and Weathering of You, all of this gets tied into Japanese experience of natural disasters. There's mm. a great deal in there about the trauma from the 2011 earthquake and all the tsunamis. It's mm. all in the DNA of the film, and it greatly affects the character's actions and the kind of world of the film. Um, once again, there's the sense that it's going to have to be the young who's going to make all of the sacrifices to right the world's wrongs, and the tragedy of that is only counterbalanced by the purity of the belief that they have that they might just succeed. So mm. it's five stars. It's a great film. Oh, lovely. Yeah, I Sounds loved great. it a lot. Very good. And I just, I want to be back there. The whole following day after seeing that movie, I just kept thinking about that world because they take a train all the way across Japan for the most part. <sighs> and they're just going from island to island, these little resorts with a little derpy chair. <laughs> that talks like a hot anime guy. <laughs> <laughs> it's very good. It's like, yeah, I want to spend more time with them. Yeah, sounds oh. great. And on Japanese trains. Yeah. More time, please. Oh my God. Absolutely. Huh. We should have talked about this earlier. We've already talked about the dangers of believing that all movies with ridiculous premises might secretly be good. That's not always the case, just because mm-hmm. Cocaine Bear, Megan and Dungeons and Dragons led you astray. Uh, sometimes they are 65. Mm-hmm. 65. This was a viral trailer um, that went around for a movie with um, Adam Driver. And you see him crash in a spaceship on a hostile alien world. And you know the movie's called 65 because you clicked on 65 trailer. And then a dinosaur shows up and it comes up 65 million years ago. Oh. It's set on Earth in the past. I remember you mentioning this at some point, but I've not seen anything about it apart from that. uh, It's fairly dull. It's a survival movie, essentially, with Adam Driver, directed by uh, Scott Beck and Brian Woods, who previously made... Oh, my God, they wrote A Quiet Place. Yeah, I guess you could see that. This is kind of like A Quiet Place if it didn't have any of the style or (laughs) sort of ability that uh, John Kravinsky, I think his name is, brought to it. And the plot doesn't make too much sense. I don't really have all that much to say about this one, actually. Um, <laughs> it, the, the only thing that kept occurring to me is that there's meant to be this language barrier. He's crashed and there's a young girl there. Um, and the young girl doesn't speak the same language as him. And I feel like the <laughs> you're very frustrated watching the movie as Driver just keeps trying to speak to her. It's like, she mm. can't understand you. Stop it. And it's solely for <laughs> our benefit, of course, so we can have this mm. like monologue on his part. But at one point, at some points, it does feel like they believe that you will have forgotten this because he has yeah. this big poignant moment where he describes that he's actually been lying to her about the end of their trip and that, you know, something tragic has happened. And he says, oh, you can't understand me. And it's like, yes, we know. We know <laughs> she can't. How did you forget? <laughs> it's ridiculous. But it's also a survival oh, movie dear. where he has a nifty little gadget to solve pretty much any problem that might come up. Hmm. Starting a fire? I got a thing. Sense of direction? Oh. Yep. And I have a gun that's that has good. just enough ammo to get us all the way through the movie. Sonic screwdriver. 
Yeah. And it's not even like these gadgets form, uh, what do you call it, sort of Chekhov's guns to pay off mm. later. They are introduced pretty much as soon as they are useful. Oh. With one exception. <laughs> and because it's the one exception, you know exactly when it's going to get used. Sure. So, yeah. It's... This is my dinosaurs. This is this? Oh, it's my <laughs> T-Rex bazooka. Don't Only worry. Only one shot. I hope a T-Rex <laughs> doesn't show up. Oh, a T-Rex. <laughs> uh... Yeah, it's yeah. it's unfortunate. It's it, it really should have been a lot more fun than it was, but it's just a premise. It's a premise that somebody greenlit and they shouldn't have. No. Oh, well. Yeah. These things happen. How many stars? Uh, oh, God. Uh, you know what's weird? After this film, we left. Katie used the bathroom. I didn't want to use the I need bathroom. to hear more about that first. Sorry. That's <laughs> key information. <laughs> well, let me, call, let me get her on the phone. Um, <laughs> she went off. I didn't want to go to the bathroom. So I decided... I need to hear more about that. That's key information. <laughs> I suddenly decided, I want to go back in. Yeah. And I went back into the film just as the credits were rolling. Everyone had left. And I was just there. And the music was playing. And I just thought about all the effort that some people put into the movie. I thought about all the work that goes in and how the score and how this will never mm. be anyone's favorite movie. And it had this weird poignancy to it. But I also <laughs> felt slightly more endeared towards it. As a result, it's very strange. I just thought, wow, they actually crafted like a score to make this work, like sci-fi, but with dinosaurs, and it needs to be tribal, but also futuristic, and I don't know. No, it's one star. (laughs) No, it's two. Adam Driver is charming enough to give it a second star. Okay, cool. I'm going to give a terrible movie two stars later because it's got a good performance in it, so I'll start that precedent now. Great. Great. But it's not this. Great. This is Rye Lane. Oh, the Peckham love story. Yeah, Peckham, Peckham okay. love story. That's exactly it, and that's how we're going to talk about it because great. It's oh god, so much of this is going to be about Peckham. Um, in the last episode, I remember bemoaning that what's love got to do with it felt like a Richard mm. Curtis view of London. Sure, which is to say, not a re- London I recognise. I've lived in London all my life, and most of the time when you see it in cinema, it is either a very posh, very white, very eccentric people living on houseboats, middle-class mm-hmm. neighborhoods, where if there is an Indian family or a black family, they're the eccentric outsiders who live in the middle of a white neighborhood and, you know, everybody loves yeah. them and we're all happy, but they are the exceptions. And it's just, as much as I love Paddington, it's just not quite <laughs> right. <laughs> Paddington, is the out, Paul. <laughs> Paddington is the loveliest version of that. Yeah, you know, it is. True. Paddington is, true. is the one you want to live in. But for the most part, oh, I see. <laughs> yeah. That's fair. But look, that's fine. That London exists, I'm sure. And people do live on houseboats in this city, but it's not all of it. And then if you do want to make a movie set south of the river or east of Charing Cross Road, it's a gritty crime movie where everything's mm-hmm. horrible and social problems make everybody desperate and mean. And thank God you don't have to live there. Let's hope Jason Statham can sort it all out. <laughs> it's it's that. Rye Lane feels like this London I know. It's set in the south around Peckham and Brixton. And it's two young people who find themselves taking a long walk together. Uh, They have both recently experienced horrible breakups and are kind of stalling in the great journey towards becoming adults. They've found themselves, you know, living at home or, you know, not pursuing their career goals. And they bond and Hmm. they get themselves caught up in some hijinks. Uh, This is David Johnson as Dom and Vivian Opera as Yaz. And they're both very very good <laughs> but we'll talk cool. about them in a minute first we're going to talk more about london because yeah where are we yeah oh actually it reminds me of the premise to eric roma's the aviator's wife where okay. a man is convinced that his girlfriend is cheating on him so he follows the possible cuckolder mm-hmm. 
um, and is accidentally joined on his uh, sort of stalking journey by a young girl who, in spite of her youth, gives him a new perspective on his relationship. It's kind of that because Dom and Yaz end up together by contrivance and give each other new perspectives on their lives. You know, it's very easy for them to call out each other on their nonsense because, you know, it's always obvious to outsiders. Um, Dom is just yeah. absolutely still obsessed with his ex uh, who has left him for his best mate. Um, and Yaz is, um, well, Yaz isn't being very honest with herself or no. with Dom, but we find out more about that as the film goes. Um, the way that she teases him and tests him out whilst he does his best to keep up and avoid embarrassing himself, often unsuccessfully. And when they start daring each other to surprise themselves and go a little further, it's just really hard not to be charmed by them mm. and find it very believable. Mm. the way they talk to each other is so definitely two strangers who are suddenly interested in each other mm. it just it feels very familiar and stylistically it's entirely its own thing and a very assured debut from rain alan miller um <laughs> it's shot with this amorphic lens so the the edges of the screen kind of curve like a fishbowl like you're looking for a peep ah. peephole and it says to remind you that you are seeing an entirely subjective perspective this mm. is a, a new view of london a little distorted but encouraging you to see it in a fantastical new way and it's like being led in on a joke um then you have the fantasy sequences where one of them will describe something to the other and so it'll be imagined as like a play on stage or mm. you know like this whittle reenactment it's only the only thing that's lacking is like animation um it's just oh, it's fantasy sequences but then also these incredibly authentic little sequences set in environments that are so familiar to anyone who's spent time in the city mm. it's it's a holistic view of south london the nice. cluttered streets indoor markets trendy art spaces you know, allotments, cinemas, the parks full of weirdos, theatres, restaurants, record shops, pubs. It's a bright and colourful South London that's as eccentric as our main characters and just this perfect marriage of setting and story. Um, and, the, and the film makes South East London feel like a cool and interesting place, a place you'd want to explore and not just survive. Mm. It's, it's also a really unique and exciting debut from an emergent talent and a rom-com that, at least to me, seems destined for cult classic status. Um, it also gets an unneeded but very sweet nod of approval from rom-com royalty, who very surprisingly shows up in one scene, um, yeah. which is, uh, yeah, it's quite charming. Nice. And I love the language as well, where they speak to mm. each other. There's a bit where there's a, a dinner happening between Dom and his ex and her, her uh, his former best friend, who is now dating her, mm. um, and also the new girl, Yaz, has shown up. Um, and is pretending to be his new girlfriend in order mm. to make her jealous. It's a great sequence, but then uh, the boyfriend, former, the former best friend, um, talks about how he got fired from his job, and obviously the old girlfriend nudges him to be like, what are you bringing that up for? You know, because she doesn't <laughs> want to look bad in front of this guy, and he just says, oh, we used to work there. It's banner. <laughs> <laughs> so good. <laughs> that's good. <laughs> that's just like, the, that's the one example. Yeah. Like, it's just to justify you, just being like, oh, it's banner, you know. Yeah. <laughs> you, know, you know he knows the people there you know it's just so much implied yeah. in that and it just oh. yeah it's that kind of thing sometimes yeah. you just see something and you just i don't know it just feels close to you it can be really exciting that's fun. um also they sold these little booklets shen kanasi which points out the filming locations of uh ah. where it was shot in various places oh, that's cute around peckham and brixton and I showed this, uh, one of these, to my flatmate Jack, and he took it to his job at Suffolk Council, where they ha now have it framed and on the wall. So, <laughs> so thanks to me for a roundabout way, there is now a little monument to Rye Lane and Suffolk Council building. Oh, that's cute. <laughs> that is cute. <laughs> I highly recommend it. It's really good. 
Oh, well, the music. I didn't talk about the music. It's amazing. But yeah. this is one of the soundtracks I want to listen to outside of the film. It's, mm, yeah, lovely. really good. How many stars? All five. All five. All five. Absolutely. Jolly D. Jolly D. We're getting there. We're really seriously getting there. Let's, let's motor We're on. Getting Pearl. there, friends. Pearl. 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 Is this your Pearl. new nickname yeah. for me? Uh, no. <laughs> oh, okay. I can I'll stick you... with poopy head then. Yeah, it's going to have to be poopy head, I'm afraid. Oh, but well. sometimes when a bit of poop gets into a clam, it makes a pearl, I think. I don't know how it works. <laughs> That's how it works. That's how it yes. works. Someone poops in a clam. And then <laughs> yeah. five you years later. You close it up, put it in a drawer, leave it for five years. Pearl. Then you'll have a pearl. <laughs> Try it at home, kids. Try it at home, kids, and write, it, write to us in five years to let us know yeah. how it went. The ideal place to put the clamshell is in your parents' sock drawer at yeah. the back. <laughs> I get really stroppy and upset if they try and move it from there. Yeah. It's got to be there for five years. Mm. So you're not getting your pearl. Yeah. But we got our pearl right now because it's pearl. Um, Ty West, great horror director, returns to the slasher film genre um, and specifically the one he made the same year called X. Oh, yes. Which I believe we reviewed on this podcast. It was we the did. group of um, pornographers who head out mm-hmm. to the um, redneck south sort of area in order to make a movie and end up getting killed one by one by a crazy old lady, uh, also played by Mia Goff. Mia Goff played... The young lead yes. of that and the killer. I remember. Um, yeah, so this is the origin story about that film's killer, Pearl. So it's young Mia Goff playing <laughs> the oh, okay, young version of the old Mia Goff from X. <laughs> okay. Uh, and there's going to be a sequel called Maxine where she plays the young one again. <laughs> <laughs> okay, fun. So it's going to be sort of a trilogy with just Mia Goff in the central, in the center, which is nice. superb. So, yeah, Pearl is a young farm girl living with her strict mother and disabled father, uh, desperately hoping that her husband shall return from World War I. Uh, she's already demonstrating some unsettling behaviour, um, <laughs> specifically feeding the uh, big crocodile that lives out back. Uh, but Ugh. now the influenza epidemic has forced everyone to wear masks and distance themselves from each other, which causes further tension. I heard influenza, not influenza. Influenza like, influenza, like... Instagram influencers. <laughs> it's fine. Okay. I, I was out without a mask. I don't think I caught it. And then the, the phone yeah. just slides up. <gasps> yeah. No. Got the influencer. Quick, let me just live stream this moment. <laughs> <laughs> please do. If I ever do that, please. <laughs> just immediately shotgun you. Please. <laughs> What's up, Fab? <sighs> <laughs> so yeah hey we- gang <laughs> <laughs> what up smash that like and subscribe <laughs> ring that bell <laughs> oh god um a visit to a cinema sparks hopes in her that she might be destined for more there's actually a musical more. number in this film oh, um, because fun. yeah it's really it's but well aside from anything else this is a vehicle for Mia Goff, who mm. really excels as the sweet and innocent axe-wielding psychopath. It's not a new creation, but she embodies it so well. The final shot of this movie is an unbroken shot of her face as the credits go over it. <laughs> um, and she's doing a forced kind of breaking smile, just really big, big eyes. And it's like wow. breaking and crashing. And it's five minutes long and just wow. terrifying. And I loved it. And I'm now a Mia Goff stan and I will defend her for the rest of my life now. <laughs> There will be no criticism of Mia Goff ever again. It's fucking, it's incredible. Are you looking it up? Oh, yeah, I'm just looking her up. <laughs> oh, she, yeah. She's she's very strange. I, we were trying to, uh, we were jokingly casting a UK version of Twin Peaks. 
Okay. And one of the people in the group suggested me a goth. Um, and someone else said, oh God, I keep forgetting she's British. And I said, it's because she sounds like she's putting it on. And somebody else <laughs> said, she talks like a, a, a dead Victorian girl, the ghost of a young Victorian girl. <laughs> I haven't and seen she, anything with her in. No, it's uh, she is quite the horror person. Yeah. She's in high, I have, high life. I can see a still from the end of the film and it yeah. is terrifying. It's that That's for great. about five minutes. It's amazing. Wow. It's incredible. It's such a feat. And I'm so... Oh god, I'm so on board of her now that she did that. <laughs> it's mega acting, it really is. It's Nicolas Cage style wow. troubadourism. God, it's almost worth watching that final shot just on its own uh, as a non-horror person because I loved it. Uh, the look of the film is fabulous. It's 1918, as you've never seen it before. <laughs> it's colourful and musical and a little kinky. You know, the first movie was about going to the countryside to make porn and and, you know, the premise of that is ever present the idea of mm. her frustrated sexuality the idea of pornography gets introduced um it's part of the it's part of the more that pearl feels mm. that she deserves and maybe the means that she's willing to use to try and get away um although there are other methods that come a little bit more naturally to her um there aren't any actual there aren't many actual murder sequences um it kind of slowly builds to a great big bloodbath at the end but once the violence does arrive, it is that mix of shocking and comedically over the top that strangely makes it more palatable without losing the impact. Yeah, it's about leaning into the violence and making it. Yeah, count. I can I can watch over the like over the top to the point of comedic violence a yeah, lot more is. than I can watch not comedic violence. Yeah. You know, I'd much rather watch. I don't know. Well, like Kill you Bill, know. like just Kill Bill. Yeah, I've seen Kill like Bill. Blood or, spraying or... all over the place. Shaun of the Dead has a lot of comedic oh, violence yeah. in yeah. a lot of very visceral violence. Would yeah. rather, I mean, yes, it's maybe not meant to look entirely realistic, but I mean, when Dylan Moran gets torn apart, there. it's yeah, it's, <laughs> it's pretty grim. I'd it rather is. watch that than literally any scene that involves one singular knife held. Oh yeah, sincerely, I've yeah. <sighs> no, that's fair enough. You, you've got to be silly, and this film is. Mm. and just like x you do feel for the victims and hope that they might mm. escape pearl's wrath and that's yeah. as horror should be you know horror is about masochism and not sadism cool. um and sadism can be very fun when it's done with a tongue-in-cheek so mm. yeah four stars i really enjoyed this fun. good for you i think i liked it better than x <gasps> <gasps> don't let x hear that oh no don't let pearl hear <laughs> maxine will be after me if she hears i preferred pearl to x <laughs> I don't understand why there were so many Mia Goths. <laughs> okay, three left. <laughs> Let's go quick. Yeah. God's creatures. <laughs> God's creatures. We're in a remote Irish fishing village where Emily Watson is a well-respected member of the community. She's a manager at her local factory where they shuck oysters, I think I've used that correctly, and gut fish mm-hmm. caught by the fishermen. And she also has a little family involving a husband and a daughter with a child and an elderly catatonic father-in-law. Uh, but all of this gets disrupted when her son returns from a mysterious time abroad in Australia. Son played by Paul Scar. <gasps> yeah, he was in Australia. It's not going to be for a good reason. No. Nobody's in Australia for, by their own choice. <laughs> <laughs> um, although initially delighted by his return, she soon finds herself in a very uncomfortable position when a woman is assaulted in the village and she instinctively lies to give him an alibi. But how far mm. is she actually willing to go to protect her son? Mm. 
It's a slow building, kind of menacing filler. Overcast skies and the bleak stony landscape create a foreboding atmosphere that suggests trouble is ahead. Um, there's no melodrama, really, just quiet tragedy. It's very gothic and moody. Um, and the small island setting makes for a good microcosm of a misogynistic society in which women are under immense pressure to participate in the defense of perpetrators at the expense mm. of victims. Um, and it all revolves around Watson. Uh, Mascal is a bit terrifying and very charismatic, but it's Watson who grounds us. Her relationship to her son is so immediately believable, but so subtly menacing and like just slightly wrong the entire time that mm. it, it, that you get the impression a lot is not being said. A lot that she might know about her son that she doesn't dare to admit to herself, even before the thing happens. Um, and then as she gets confronted by the dilemma of loyalty to her estranged son, who has already lost at least once before, sorry, she has already lost at least once before mm. when he went to Australia, her loyalty to her community, to herself and her own values becomes the conflict and it is just palpable. Um, mm. But, although her journey is very powerful, there's a very dramatic and slightly convenient and improbable conclusion to the relationship that doesn't quite ring true to me. Um, which is a shame because it's very possible to resolve this in a way that would feel more organic there's a choice to be made here but that kind of gets well she makes a different choice and it's odd <laughs> okay it, it, in a way that still makes sense for where the character was going but is i don't know it pushes this into a different place into a slightly surrealer place um it's very involving and beautiful and absolutely a vehicle for um emily watson who deserves more vehicles um yeah, she's she's just incredible. And I look forward to seeing what the directors, uh, Sila Davis and Anna Rose Holm, will do next. But it, it's I, I'm still going to give it four stars. I still was really involved in it and really immersed, but I do nice. feel it lost itself at the end. Oh, shame. Is Emily Watson in mm. Equilibrium? Is that yes. her? Yeah, that's her. Oh, I do love her then. Yeah, she's very good. <laughs> mm, she's excellent. <laughs> love her and, yeah, have loved her in so many things. Mm. Yeah. I didn't write any notes for this one. It's Night of the Twelfth. It's a French filler that um, it starts with a a title informing you of the sheer number of unsolved murders that occur in it, France every year, and then it says this is one of them. And it's um, a woman who was walking home from a party when suddenly she gets something thrown in her face. Oh no, is it acid? No, it's not. It's some form of um, petroleum. Because next mm. thing you know, up she goes. Um, so a woman is burned to death, and it's it's basically just a sort of very grim French thriller about trying to find out who did it mm. and it's, it's well French. acted well paced a little generic perhaps you yeah. know there's no memories of a murder or anything like that but sure. it, it's very good at sort of investigating and interrogating the system in which this sort of thing oh. happens and how hard it is and the horrible thing is actually yes the best parts of the movie is that he says the reason this case got to him the detective does is that any one of the men in her life could have done it mm and that there is a serious problem between men and women in society. Yeah. That's what really is haunting, and that's why that particular case stayed with him. Um, yeah, it's it's a film that is fairly dark. Some parts of it will stay with you. Um, but it's also just a sort of... It says right from the off, this is an unsolved murder. So, you know, it's going to have that Zodiac yeah. kind of thing to it. And unlike Zodiac, it doesn't really suggest a possible killer. Um, so okay. you're just along for the ride and for the the process um, but it mm. is, yeah, suitably devastating as well. Wow. Yeah. Night of the Twelfth. Night of the Twelfth. One more, Jen. Mm. Last one. Did you ever watch um, Spiral? Mm. 
No, I okay. So I the French series. I watched through the Killing, the Scandi series with mm-hmm. um, my mother, and she loved it. And I thought, oh, I know, I'll get an, another crime drama for us to watch together. And I got inspired, and she said, oh no, I watched some of this with your father, and it is far too violent for me. And I was like, yeah, okay, I'll just keep it around then for when I'll watch it. And here we are, ten years later. Yeah, David really enjoyed it, um, but it's a French, you know, procedural thing. Yeah. It's not necessarily that it was too violent for me. Mm. It was just very grim. Yeah, very that's tough, right? grim. You need Sophie Grabble to come in as a pillar of integrity. There was, there's no the joy thing. in. Yeah, there was no joy in this universe of Spiral. It's oh. people do horrible things, and the system is corrupt. And oh god, that's it. Yeah, and we're French. We're French, and we accept <laughs> to that. top it all off. But at least they get really good cake and cheese. Yeah, they do. Yeah. The cigarettes that they're smoking. Excellent. I don't think there'd be any need to go out murdering each other. No. Yeah. But, you know. They've got such France, good holidays and working hours. <laughs> You've got such good pastries. <laughs> you can get baguettes at any time in the night. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Why? Put down the, Why? The, the petroleum. Yeah. Oh dear. Yeah, pastry. Just just me walking around the country. Every time I see some man looking angry, I just <laughs> like, quietly put a pastry in his mouth and I'm like, calm down, love. Like little Johnny Appleseed just flinging pastries <laughs> yeah. into the countryside. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Grow into pastry trees. <laughs> and everywhere she went is where there is a pastry tree now. The end. Yeah. I was trying to figure the French for good night. Couldn't do it. Bonne nuit. Bonne nuit. Bonne nuit. Bonne nuit. Bonne nuit. Children. Les enfants. Les enfants. <laughs> Reminded me of I was trying I was telling someone about Le- uh, Leos Carax. Today, and I was like, Leos oh, is that Carax. how you say it? And it's like, yeah, it is, right? If yeah. I, it should be like <laughs> Leon Cara or Carré yeah. or something like that. But no, it's Leos Carax, so you sound like an idiot who doesn't know what he's talking about. <laughs> is there a Leos Carax here? <laughs> Package for Leos Carax. <laughs> Yeah, that's me, that is. <laughs> I'm Mr. Carrox. Mr. Uh, Carrox. <laughs> Sounds almost uh, like carrots. That is correct. That's correct. That's rhymes with, yes, Carrox as in carrots. Carrox as in carrots. <laughs> <laughs> well, how appropriate. You should, uh, she uh, did a little prayer thing and backed away because my final <laughs> I film did. is... I was stretching my wrists, but oh. I, I did. <laughs> I thought that was part of the joke I didn't get. No. Yep, <laughs> no carrots no, no, as in no, carrots. Amen. Amen. Pope's exorcist. Um, most of the time I'm just fidgeting, Paul. I love that. It's mostly just fidgeting. It's my favourite thing. This Thanks. is the Pope's exorcist. The Pope's exorcist? The Pope's exorcist. The Pope sexorcist. <laughs> yeah, that's the it. Pope's the Pope's sexorcist. Or cyst. Or cyst. Is it his sex is it or sex? is it a cyst? Is it a cyst? <laughs> <laughs> the new game show from... No one. No one picked it up. No one ever. Please. Yeah. Please no. The Pope's Exorcist. Exorcist, yes. Exorcist. Uh, from the director of excellent film Overlord, disappointingly, we have Russell Crowe, <laughs> who is for some reason playing Father Gabriel Amorf, uh, a real Catholic priest and exorcist who claims to have performed 70,000 exorcisms and that practicing yoga and reading Harry Potter is satanic. I'm half with you, Gabe. <laughs> <laughs> Almost there, mate. Almost there. Uh, if every one of these exorcisms was as drawn out as this one, then it's no wonder that he had to live to 91 to manage it. Wow. Uh, <laughs> uh, a mother and her two, da- her, two daughter- her two children, one an attractive teen, the other a waif-like pale boy with sunken eyes. I wonder which <laughs> one's getting possessed and which one's going to be menaced in skimpy clothing for the whole movie. 
<laughs> Wave like boy, please. Wave like boy. Let's keep me clothing. <laughs> they move into an obviously haunted house in the cliffside <laughs> in Spain. Yeah. Um, and surprise, surprise, the boy gets possessed and they have to call for... Um, the Pope's exorcist. The Pope's exorcist, played by Russell Crowe. Mm. Crowe really is the saving grace here, so to speak, because wow. for some reason he really commits to this role and does an accent that's among his better ones to my ears. <laughs> it is a little like his um, Greek Not accent a great in, record. in 4, um, mm. which was always a little bit Stavros, you know, the Harry Enfield character. Yeah. Hello, everybody, Pips. For his own Greek <laughs> accent. <laughs> um, he's doing a similar one here for his Italian <laughs> Um, but hey, it's it's hey. it's it's his hey. charm and charisma that he puts yeah. into the old man, giving him a humor and warmth that is really the only endearing part of the whole film. Why is this subgenre still around? <laughs> the exorcism movie. It's weirdly popular, or at least flares up every ten years or so. And in spite of the fact that roughly three and a half good ones have ever been made, <laughs> The Exorcist, the tragically incomplete Exorcist Three. There's your half. The Exorcism of Emily Rose and Lovely Molly, which is actually more of a fan footage haunted house movie. Not counting The Conjuring, because that really is just a haunted house movie with mm. lip service played to exorcism. So, why? Why more? Why all constant exorcism <laughs> movies when nobody enjoys this subgenre? Whenever it comes up, it's like, oh yeah, do you remember that one, The Right, with Anthony Hopkins? Or that the last exorcism or the taking of you know deborah whatever her name was like why <laughs> why all these movies it doesn't make sense and yeah but anyway what can you expect from a such a movie well the family mm. will have pre-existing issues that she'll be abandoned once things kicked off and never resolved uh there'll be some bumps in the night a young person will start swearing and yelling obscenities which is very funny in this one and that starts <laughs> happening they show some very I don't know. The example he gave was just amusing to me. It was such a sort of edgelord Twitter thing to say <laughs> that it was very comical. Um, some contortionalism and double jointedness that will that yeah. will stigmatize, that will get stigmatized as being unnatural. If you're lucky and you're watching um, the Devil Inside, you might even get some stigmatization of uh, periods. Oh yay! Yay! Too many people accept periods those as being suck. natural. They should be stigmatized. <laughs> People should be exercised until they stop doing that. I wish. If I could be exercised by a priest and never have a period again, I would do it. I'm getting some PMS. The power of Christ compels you. At last, the Catholic Church is good for something. <laughs> and then some religious people yell a lot, which doesn't work at all until it does the end. So Yay. That's the movie. And that's all of these movies. And it's funny because although The Exorcist does have all of those things and popularize them, it un- and undeniably did them better than any of the imitators, it still remains one of the scariest films ever made for different reasons. It's what's unknown in that movie that's scary, what isn't explained. You don't get to hear the full plan for Reagan, you know, what what the devil wants with her. It's all about the shadows and what's insinuated. That's what's creepy. This movie, like so many others in this genre, spends ages explaining what the demon is, what it does, how it works, and how to get rid of it. And therein lies a big problem with this entire subgenre, because the mythology of the haunting of these movies is the mythology of the Catholic Church. Mm. The heroes are members of the clergy, who are vindicated in their beliefs by the contrivances of the genre, i.e. that ghosts and demons typically need to exist, uh, for the most part. See, Exorcism of Emily Rose for a bit of ambiguity. But for the most part, priests are the heroes, demons are the bad guys, and exorcism is the means of getting rid of bad guys. But obviously, <laughs> the modern world, we know differently. So 
There's always the need to have lip service paid to the idea that sometimes it's not possession. Most of the time it's mental health issues, but sometimes it's possession. Because, yeah. you know, in real life we know it's always mental health issues. And the church uses exorcism to stigmatize disabled people, uh, use demonize people who fall out of line and mm. to reassert its power. You know, genocides have been committed in the name of driving out heretics and, you know, stopping the devil. And indeed, the Spanish Inquisition is referred to here. And Crow has the very ambiguous line, the darkest time of the church. And these are its victims, referring to a pile of skulls. Okay, are those the victims of the church who shouldn't have been killing people (laughs) for being possessed? Or are they the victims of the devil who were legitimately possessed? I'm going to need an answer on this. Either way, it does go on to justify the actions of said murderers by proving that evil does exist um, and, you know, the evil they're persecuting is real. So it's fairly gross to see that behavior justified and always has been. Yay. It's my it's my big issue with the Conjuring films too and I like those movies but Ed and Lorraine Warren are hacks. So, <laughs> I don't know. It, it makes you wonder who these movies are actually for. Are the super religious able to enjoy these somewhat kinky and grossy little horror films with all the blood and the swearing? <laughs> And our general audience mm. is able to buy into the real, wor- real world ideology of Catholicism as fantasy. Maybe they can, because after all, yeah. heavy metal bands and horror movies have always drawn on religious iconography without asking you to actually sign up. So oh, yeah. this, film, this film's intended audiences are trusted not to take it seriously. But yeah. it's still it brings up a lot of stuff. Anyway suspending moral issues and getting on board with the world of the film, it's still very boring. So... <laughs> Like almost all of these exorcism films are. If not for Crow, it would have gone straight to streaming and been ignored, which is what it deserves. But it does <laughs> have Crow, so it'll have two stars. Okay. Nice your bonus gave... star for Crow. I don't know if Night of the Twelve got a star rating. I think... Oh, yeah. It wasn't anything terribly new is my only issue with it. But I did like its um, talk of like gender roles and such. And yeah, that was interesting. Okay. All right, three stars. Three stars, fine. Yeah. Trois étoiles. Trois étoiles. <laughs> I, I speak French, I can't. No. Twice a twist. That's, got, that's tricky. It's a tongue twister. Chris Waddle. And that's mm-hmm. a 90s reference because I'm a 90s man. And if Super <laughs> Mario Brothers wants me to get on board, they're going to have to put that sort of thing in their movie. <laughs> but they didn't, so I'm out. <laughs> oh, I didn't say the best payoff of that. Five minutes into Shazam 2, they're saving a bunch of people from a bridge, and once somebody's radio is playing, I'm holding out for a hero at the end of the wow. night. And I saw those movies back to back. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> the anthem of lazy movies. Yeah. And Shrek. Yeah, I feel like Shrek really set it up as like, this is yeah. your high energy, like, I don't know. Just shove it <sighs> in your film when you can't think what else to put in. It feels yeah. like, you know how composers use placeholder music yeah it feels like placeholder <laughs> music now yeah for films well, like mean, since shrek d- used it it's like if, everyone uses it as a placeholder and then they go oh that's quite a good song actually i think if like, i can viscerally imagine one of the compare the market meerkats singing it then you should probably retire it from all films yeah. i'm sure there's been one of those ads where they sing that P- quite pop probably I need a hero. Uh, <laughs> ah. oh the world's horrible jen make it better <laughs> tell people how they can find out about this podcast you can find out about this podcast by going to Twitter at Screen Mayhem. Do it. Um, 
if you want to get in touch with us, you can tweet at us at Screen Mayhem oh. or you can email us um, at f- uh, filmcriticpodcast at gmail.com. That's correct, isn't it? Yes, it is. Yeah. Um, theme music was by Jacob Blundell and we were your hosts. My name was Jen Blundell and my film critic was Paul Salt. Like, goodbye, Paul Salt. Au revoir. Yeah. Au revoir. Well done. Yeah. Well done. Such a multilingual episode. Oh my god, it's been several languages. Can you do several. See you next time in Arabic. In Arabic, illaliko. Uh, illaliko. Yeah. Until the next meeting. Nice. Alan Nicole. Alan Nicole, everybody. Bye. Goodbye.